Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the federal government says no to Thanksgiving, lockdown inconsistency, and Brian Lee Crowley on his newest book, Gardeners vs. Designers. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Monday, October 5th, 2020, and the never-ending lockdown is continuing. Yes, Teresa Tam, the Chief Public Health Advisor in Canada, has said that Thanksgiving is something that we should approach with caution. Now, I don't actually like Thanksgiving dinners in general, so this is actually great advice for me because I get to be like, oh no, Teresa Tam told me I, I can't have turkey, but... I kid, I do it because I, I like the people involved, so I am going to get together with my family, but uh, that is potentially a no-no, potentially not a no-no, we don't exactly know, no, because uh, Teresa Tam is not giving any particular hard and fast rules, she's just saying, ah, oh, you should have caution for Thanksgiving, keep your indoor gatherings small, and ensure social distancing at outdoor gatherings. This is uh, dovetailing on when Justin Trudeau mentioned a couple of weeks ago in his address to the nation that Thanksgiving is gone, it's a write-off, but we might, might, might be able to cling to the idea that potentially, perhaps in December, we can have Christmas. So this is like the ultimate carrot and stick. When the federal government is telling us if we're good and we behave, we might get to have Christmas in two months, give me a break. Because right now, the public health advisors can't actually figure out what they're supposed to be doing. So you've got Teresa Tam on the federal level saying, ah, you should be careful with Thanksgiving, but not putting any hard and fast rules forward. And then you've got in Ontario advice that really restricts the size of your social bubble and ultimately doesn't go back to the lockdown measures we saw a couple of months ago. But then you have this tweet from Teresa Tam, which I believe you need an enigmatologist to decipher. She says, our goal for COVID-19 response remains to minimize severe illness and deaths, but this kick at the curve is a bit different. With schools and businesses open, everyone's efforts are crucial. This time, we've got to bend it like Canadians, give it the old double-double by layering personal risk assessment and prevention practices and reconfiguring and downsizing our in-person hashtag contact bubble as and where possible. I actually didn't read the capital, so let me, let me try this again. Give it the old double-double by layering personal risk assessment and prevention practices and reconfiguring and downsizing. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry if I've blown out your speakers. I don't know if you're listening to the Andrew Lawton show on a subwoofer or some Bose system, but I have to give it like the full uh, capital letter gusto when I read these tweets. No one has any idea what she's saying, by the way. This is, and I, she probably didn't write it. She has staff and bureaucrats to do this. But you can look at the ratio there, 83 retweets at the time that I record this, 402 quote tweets, most of them saying, uh, what on earth are we being told to do here? At this point, no one really knows. There's a, a lot of cases where the left hand doesn't know what the far left hand is doing. And one notable example of this is the city of Toronto, where their chief public health officer, Dr. Eileen Davila, has put forward a sweeping list of recommendations to Toronto that she wants the Ontario government or the Toronto government to impose. She writes, for restaurants and bars, I request the suspension of indoor service for a period of four weeks, so that's just under a month, 
Four weeks represents an interruption of two incubation periods for the virus. These venues would still be able to continue outdoor takeout, pickup, and delivery services. Oh, well, gee, thanks. She says, for athletic facilities, I request the suspension of indoor group fitness classes and indoor group recreation and team sports. The nature of these activities creates a real risk of virus spread And we have seen exactly that in our community. Again, I propose this suspension for a pilot period of four weeks. Pilot period. So that's not a maximum of four weeks. That is a minimum of four weeks. She says here she does not want a return to the lockdown that we saw last spring. She says, I don't believe that's necessary. My proposals are meant to prevent the conditions that would force a large-scale lockdown. Yet, I also have a trouble accepting that when she says in her recommendations this, I'm recommending that individuals only consider leaving their homes for essential activities such as work, education, and fitness, to name a few. So if we're going back to a mentality where you only leave home when you absolutely have to, you only leave home for essential business, we are actually laying the groundwork for a lockdown like we saw in spring. So yeah, you can say that maybe it's a little bit more liberal or a little bit more relaxed than it was from a legal perspective, but what we have being recommended from the public health officer of Canada's largest city is that we go back to staying indoors, the whole stay home, save lives shtick, where we don't actually get to go out unless we're going to the grocery store, going to work, or going to school, which in most cases moot because she even says, listen, everyone should be working from home anyway. So this is now where we're at. On one hand, you've got uh, recommendations that the government's going too far from activists, from advocates, from businesses that are saying, listen, we barely survived the first lockdown. Now you've got some public health officers that are saying go further. You've got others that are just shrugging and using some combination of capital letters that makes no sense to anyone. And the level of inconsistency in this is astonishing. Right now, I mentioned that the left hand doesn't know what the far left hand is doing. We're being told by some officials that we have to stay home, save lives, and by other officials, we're being told that, hey, we can just do whatever we want. I was watching Wheel of Fortune last week, which is, believe it or not, still on and is a great show, and I came across an ad that something jumped out at me from. And I want to play this ad for you because I found it online and see if you see it as well. Get a nice wall. He's a professional. Hey, Grandma. These last few months, I've been thinking. You know, quarantine has kept us apart. But I can't just blame COVID. Because the last time we were really together, just the two of us, was... I don't even know. But I'm going to change that. And we don't need to wait for some moment. Let's go to Niagara Falls this weekend. What we do is up to you. I just want to be together. And this time, no, it's not your birthday or a holiday or some special occasion. Because Grandma, you are my occasion. Okay, so that was the very ad that I saw on TV, an ad telling everyone that in lockdown, you can drift away from your family members, but you can come back and you can go out with grandma and have a great time in Niagara Falls. So right there, it seems a little bit odd because the whole point is that we're supposed to stay home to save grandma's life, whereas this ad is telling us we should visit Niagara Falls with grandma and have a grand old time. Okay, have fun. Now, this is specifically filmed 
knowing the coronavirus pandemic is going on. It's not just some old ad. But did you see the last frame? The very last frame of that ad, Federal Economic Development Agency for Southern Ontario. This is a federal government-funded advertisement. The same federal government that's telling us, oh, you know, you got to stay home and you shouldn't have too many people at Thanksgiving dinner and we can get through this, is now advertising tourism or funding the advertisement of tourism. Now, to be clear, if you want to go to Niagara Falls with Grandma, have at it. I don't really care. But it's yet another example of the gross inconsistency between different levels of government, and in some cases between uh, different departments in the same level of government. Advertising tourism, while on the other hand saying that, you know, we have to stay home and save lives. And this was, remember, what Justin Trudeau said during his address to the nation about that very idea of staying home. In the spring, we all did our part by staying home. And this fall, we have even more tools in the toolbox. So he doesn't specifically say that staying home is something we need to do right now, but he mentions basically that it's one of the tools we have in the toolkit. And this is the speech, of course, where he said that we still have a, a fighting chance at salvaging Christmas. Now, I reached out to Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada to ask them about this. Say, listen, the advice is still to not travel abroad. What is the official advice on traveling domestically, on traveling in Canada? And they did not give me at all a straight answer. I was told that, uh, yes, Andrew, domestic land travel is indeed interprovincial territorial and should follow provincial and territorial measures and rules. That wasn't what I asked. I asked, is it recommended or is it advised against? And I'm pretty sure they don't want to answer because they know that it will expose huge inconsistencies in the advice that has been presented. So on one hand, we're being told to stay home, save lives. And on the other hand, the government is bankrolling ads telling us to literally bring grandma to Niagara Falls. So take from that what you will. We've got to take a break. When we come back, Brian Lee Crowley and I chat about his new book here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. You've no doubt heard of liberal versus conservative, left versus right, globalist, populist, all of these great divides that exist in Canadian and international politics. There's a new one that you might not be as familiar with that's being put forth in a book by the great Brian Lee Crowley, Gardeners versus Designers, Understanding the Great Fault Line in Canadian Politics. Brian, it's good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today and congrats on the new book. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. It's always great to be on the show. So this dichotomy that you put forward, what is it? Well, look, I, I, it, it comes from an experience. I don't know if any of your uh, uh, audience have had the same experience, but I kept listening to all these people tell me about what a terrible place Canada was, that it's full of racists, it's full of homophobes, it's, it's full of uh, genocidal maniacs. Uh, uh, and I, I began to say, but but this doesn't correspond to my own experience of Canada. And it doesn't correspond, I think, for example, to the, to the fact that something like 40% of the population of, uh, of our great urban areas in Canada are actually people born in another country. They chose Canada. They came here because they had lots of choices. They could have gone to many places, but they chose Canada. And surely they didn't choose Canada because it's a terrible place. And so I began to ask myself, so what is, what is really behind this? 
And how can we begin to understand what a great place Canada is? And really, that's what my book is about. My book is about what a great place Canada is. Well, we shouldn't be, that Canada is not a problem to be fixed. Canada is instead a rich inheritance to be joined, to enjoy it. And that and, and that's, gets us to this idea of gardeners versus designers, because my view is that what the designers want, the people who really want the top-down model, they want to be able to tell us how to live. They want to be able to organize our cities. They want to tell us how to get our health care. They want to, you know, just organize our lives, how to get daycare, you name it. They've always got a program. They've always got a way to fix what's wrong with Canada. And what I wanted to do in the book was to say, well, actually, every time we let the designers have their way, they tell us how they're going to fix Canada. It actually turns out to be a pretty big mess. And the alternative is not to do nothing. The alternative is to elect Canadians through their own experiences, their own knowledge, their own understanding of their own circumstances, of themselves, about what's important to them, about what's important to their families. They solve their own problems in a way that's pretty impressive. And what we need to do is we need to support these grassroots uh, uh, solutions to our problems rather than the top-down ones. And that's the opposition I'm talking about between gardeners and designers. One of the things that I, I found when I was reading through it, th there's almost a similar parallel to some of the ideas you see in, in foreign policy and international relations discussions of people on one side that want to view the world the way it is and work within that, and then the uh, you know uh, <laughs> cursed idealists on the other side that are so focused on this abstract vision. And I don't know if that was something that you thought of when you were formulating this, but it does seem like there is that contrast between, uh, on one hand, the people that sort of refuse to look at how the country is and are trying to make it into something else. Yes, I think there's a lot of truth to that, Andrew. And in fact, uh, you know, the people who uh, are enamored of, uh, you know, the United Nations as, uh, you know, the great hope for democracy, the same organization that just elected, uh, uh, what was it, Iran and Russia and China to the Human Rights Council, as if these are people who are going to defend human rights around the world at the mm -hmm. time when they're abusing them uh, without apology at home. I, I, you know, one of the reasons why I think genuine Democrats are rather concerned about this creeping internationalization, you know, that uh, we take our lead from the UN and, other, you know, the, the IMF and, the, you know, the uh, World Economic Forum and so on, uh, is because, um, you know, these idealistic organizations uh, are very far from the real world that we inhabit. And uh, only democracies, I think, are uh, able to defend democracy. We can't look to non-democratic countries to, uh, to defend our interests. Do you see the gardeners and designers as falling strictly on, on what we would understand as left-right lines? No, I don't think so. Uh, in fact, you know, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I said, you know, we, we, we don't think very well about these things. Uh, and in fact, uh, part of what I'm saying is that... Um, at the moment, uh, designers seem to be in the ascendant, you know, the, the kind of progressives, the people who, you know, every day they're, they're tweeting, you know, Canada should be ashamed about X, uh, and uh, we have a plan to fix Canada. Uh, uh, and um, I, I, I think the, the, the gardeners have kind of almost forgotten uh, what it is that's so great about, uh, about Canada, how it became one of the most attractive societies in the world, uh, they uh, need to be reminded 
what it is that made Canada great and how we can harness you know, the, the intelligence of Canadians their, and their knowledge about themselves and their communities in a way that makes Canada an even better place. Uh, I, I don't think there's any political party that really gets this yet. It's true that there are probably more people in the Conservative Party that are going to read about gardeners and say, gee, yeah, he's articulating something that I feel but have never been able to put into words. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that for a uh, hundred years, the Liberal Party was a gardener's party, no doubt about it. Sir Wilfrid mm. Laurier was a gardener of the first water. Uh, so the, the Liberal Party has forgotten its gardener roots. Uh, and I think uh, uh, both the Liberals and the Tories need to be reminded that there is an alternative to the top-down program, Canada is a problem to be fixed. You mentioned in that uh, response there knowledge, and, and one of the arguments that I, I found really unique, and I hadn't actually considered it in the book, was how you equated freedom to knowledge, and, and specifically in the context of, of freedom to pursue, to explore, to experiment as being really the direct path to knowledge. And I, I don't think a lot of people traditionally view liberty in those terms. I think people, and for good reason, look at freedom as a means un, as an end unto itself. But you're saying there's something more fundamental to that about true human progress well yeah i mean w without getting into a, a, a technical discussion you know the, the fact of the matter is that um uh if if we act on mistaken ideas you know if we're wrong about how things work when we exercise our freedom you know we make mistakes we get things wrong and so uh, the 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 truly free person is always seeking the most up-to-date, the most effective, the most real, the most uh, proven knowledge on which to act, right? Uh, and so the question then becomes, free people have a tremendous interest in having the most knowledge available. Uh, you know, the, 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 the best mm -hmm. knowledge about how to provide health care, how to provide daycare, how to provide prescription drugs, how to, uh, you know, how to get an education, all the things that make up our lives uh, in order to be effective in exercising our freedom, we want to have the most knowledge possible uh, with which to exercise that freedom. And, uh, you know, part of the argument of the book is that people at the very top, you know, the people designing all these fabulous programs that are going to fix all our problems, they're the most ignorant people in society. They're ignorant about our lives. They're ignorant about, because every one of us is unique. You know, we are not a statistic. Uh, statistics take, a, take away from us everything that makes us an individual and makes us this abstract number. And, you know, because people at the top have to be guided by statistics because they can't possibly know Andrew Lawton's life and Brian Crowley's life and Joe Smith's life and Jane Smith's life. Uh, you know, only you and I have the knowledge about who we are, about what we want, about what's important to us in our communities. And so when we let people at the top tell us how to act, we're actually less free and we're actually acting on less information than when we can uh, make our own decisions for ourselves. That's a key part of the book. And your chapter on identity, which I think needs to be required reading in, in every high school across the country, by the way, really expresses that well. You talk about how most people cannot be reduced down to the identity group of whatever it is, you know, a, a woman identity, a LGBT identity, a racial identity, and, and so on. But there does seem to be in the designers this idea of pushing that as being really the trump card, more important than however anyone else identifies. Yes, well, uh, 
you know, you, you can't assign, in my view, you can't assign a person to a group like, okay, your, your skin is black, therefore you're black. And that's, now we know everything that matters about you because you're black. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is if you get into the mind of someone who's black or someone who's female or someone who's Chinese or so, pick your identity group, it doesn't matter. As soon as you get inside their mind, you realize they're not reducible to a single dimension. They are complex people. They have ideas. They have things that are important to them. They have objectives in their lives. They, they have different people that they care about. Some, sometimes they're workers, sometimes they're trade unionists, sometimes they're mortgage holders. So it, it, there's a zillion things that make up every individual. Mm -hmm. And when we reduce them to membership in a group, it's always the designers who say, ah, you see, I found the one thing that we need to know about this person in order to help them or fix them or, uh, you know, uh, uh, bring in a program that will make their lives better. And uh, the, the argument I'm making in the book is the only thing you need to know about a person is what's in their head. It's what they want. It's what's important to them. The color of their skin, you know, the ethnic group, their, their, their origin, whether they're an immigrant or native born, these are all, they're not irrelevant, but they're small things compared to what's in our heads. And only we know what's important to us as individuals. And lest anyone think this is a, a theoretical problem, I, I would point out that there are a great many hiring practices, as you note in the book, and we see this especially in the Canadian government, that are based on that idea of what we would call identity politics. So it's not just a, a theoretical issue you're raising here, but one that we're seeing in practice, uh, and probably increasingly so. Absolutely. And part of the argument I make in the book is uh, it's it's just math. You know, uh, if you genuinely wanted to say, well, uh, all employers must have uh, workforces that are representative of the population, by which they mean all the groups that they can identify that they think are important. You mentioned LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, there is nobody, uh, no country, no company, no group, no organization, including the federal government that has a workforce large enough that it could be truly representative in that sense. And as soon as we start focusing on group membership in things like uh, how, you know, the, the employees you have, rather than the competence and the knowledge of the people themselves, we move away from meritocracy and, uh, uh, you know, picking the best person for the job, which I still think is one of the, one of the, one of the gardener institutions that we've developed. You know, we are a society in which people get ahead, not because of who they are, or who they know, but, be, uh, but because of what they know. Uh, if we allow that to be, you know, shunted aside in favor of, oh, let's make sure every group is represented in every workforce, it will be a tremendous loss to Canadian society. When you look at choices and freedom, I, I have to point out this line that jumped out in the book. The state does not protect your choices. It protects you, the chooser. What does that distinction mean? And why is that so important? Well, uh, I, I, I guess the, the thing to remember is that what makes your life, what makes my life, what makes the life of every human being is the choices that we make. This, this is how we make our lives. This is how we make our character. Uh, this is how we make uh, our profession. This is how we choose our mate. You know, uh, everything about our life is what we choose for ourselves. And the important thing, therefore, is to protect our ability to choose, not to say 
gee, you know, if you knew as much as I know, uh, I'm, I'm the great, uh, you know, minister of X or, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the head of Statistics Canada. If only you knew what I knew, you would make the right choice. But we, you see, that's exactly what we can't do in a society of free people is we can't let people at the top say, we know more than you do. So we're, we will make choices on your behalf. So the important thing is not uh, the role of government is not to make choices for us because we're too ignorant to make our own choices. The role of government is to make sure that nobody interferes with our ability to make our own choices. That's when we get to live our best life according to our own understanding, our own lights, uh, what we care about and who we know. And that's especially timely in the last eight months where we've been subjected to, some people would argue for good reason, others would argue not so much, rule by experts. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the themes of the book is that uh, we defer way too much to experts. Uh, uh, you know, this is, again, part of the designer uh, idea that, you know, we, we at the center, we in government, we advise by the most important experts in the world know far more than you do. So please, you know, just be quiet and let us tell you what to do. Uh, and I, I, in the book, I talk about COVID as, a, as an example of, well, you know, how realistic is this idea that experts are going to fix things for us? And I, I, I look at, you know, all of your listeners, Andrew, will remember that at the beginning of COVID, uh, you know, the idea that we would close the border was nonsense. Then mm -hmm. we closed the border. No, no, wearing masks, according to the experts, won't make any difference. Now we're all wearing masks. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on of experts. Well, experts learn too. Uh, experts don't know everything. In fact, experts mostly know the past. They know, well, yes, okay, we have historical knowledge of what happened in other pandemics, et cetera. But every bug is different. Uh, every circumstance is different. And now, uh, you know, we're, we're deep into COVID and the expert advice is changing every day and different countries have different experts offering different advice. The idea that there is some kind, some kind of expert consensus driven by science that gives one answer that we should all uh, capitulate to is absolute rubbish. Do you think that the designers are so integrated in the Canadian bureaucracy, in academia and other institutions, perhaps in the media, that there really is not an easy path forward to reclaim the gardener mentality? Well, the thing that gives me hope, Andrew, is that, you know, no matter how much uh, designers claim that they're acting on the best knowledge, uh, thanks to the best expert advice, the fact of the matter is that most of the time they get it wrong and uh, they make mistakes and those mistakes ramify, you know, they, they multiply, you know, uh, uh, just think about uh, the Ontario government and its attempt to bring in a, a, a green economy and how they ruined the, uh, the electricity system and that had huge knock-on effects on employment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and now the federal government is trying to reproduce that. The, the, it, it would be hard to defeat the designer mentality uh, if designers got it right and their solutions worked. Fortunately, they often don't get it right. In fact, most of the time they don't get it right. You know, our circumstances evolve. And even if they got it right when they brought it in, their program soon is outdated and based on outmoded information. Uh, uh, whereas gardeners are always 
able to be at the cutting edge because they're always asking people to use their own knowledge. You know, you, what you and I know about our lives is always more up to date than anybody else can know about us. Uh, and so when, you know, gardeners say, no, let's, let's rely on what people say they want. Let's rely on their own efforts. Let's encourage them. Let's give them support in making their own choices. Uh, the outcomes are better. Uh, and I think that um, uh, as we move into an era of, uh, you know, designer dominance in our, in our politics, it's a bit like Margaret Thatcher uh, uh, used to say, you know, yeah, you know, socialism's okay, uh, uh, spending other people's money is okay, except eventually you run out of other people's <laughs> money. Eventually you run out of other people's money. And uh, people start saying, well, wait a minute, you're taking a lot of my money to mm -hmm. provide programs that don't actually work very well for me. And that's when you start to get the pushback. Do you see populism as being an inherent byproduct of this gardener approach? Uh, no, I think populism is an inherent outcome of the designer approach. Uh, you know, uh, really, the, 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 the populism is a reaction against designerism. Uh, it's a reaction against the mentality that says, uh, I, you know, I'm at the top of the political food chain. I'm really smart. I've been to a fancy university. I have a big PhD. I hire the best experts. And I'm telling you what's good for you. And if you don't like it, well, you're obviously a, a, an ignorant redneck and your <laughs> opinion can be completely dismissed. This drives people crazy, Andrew. Uh, it's, it's the basket of deplorables mentality. And uh, I, I think that uh, populism is an inevitable outcome of a designer-dominated political era when people say, I'm sick and tired of politicians telling me that what I know about my own life doesn't matter is unimportant, is ignorant, and in fact is embarrassing. So I guess with that being said, do you think that the designer uh, realm is going to collapse on its own? Or do you think there is a, a response of sorts that's needed to steer things back into the gardener column? Well, you know, look, I think that it's inevitable that people come to realize that designerism doesn't work. But I also think that it's amazing how hard it is and how much work it takes to make something inevitable happen. It doesn't just happen by itself, Pete. Yeah, people will still keep trying to ram the, uh, the square peg into the round hole. <laughs> yeah, people have to make a decision that, no, uh, look, we tried this, doesn't work, uh, move on. Uh, I, I, you know, making the inevitable happen is a big effort. You gotta push that rock up the hill. Uh, and, uh, it may well be that uh, I, I remember talking to one uh, former politician the other day and she said, well, you know, the problem is that it seems that the designers uh, uh, always win at, at election time. And I think, well, uh, I, I, I've, I've heard people say this, but then, you know, think about, I, I mentioned the Ontario government, you know, the Kathleen Wynne government, mm -hmm. you know, they were kind of designers par excellence. Uh, and finally people said, no, this is not working. And they were out on their ear. So sometimes you have to let these things run their course, uh, but you have to keep reminding people what the alternative is so that when they understand that this has run its course and it doesn't work, they say, oh, wait a minute, wasn't there an alternative here? So I, I, part, of the, part of the purpose of the book is to keep these intellectual tools sharp 
and available to the population so that when people say, yeah, boy, this really doesn't work, they say, oh, wait a minute, but there was an alternative. And, and, and that alternative is there easily available within reach so that we can put it to work and people will realize that it actually works for Canadians. And I guess the one thing I would end with here is asking you if you were to put forward a roadmap that you were going to share with all of the political leaders of Canada, and I guess you have to some extent done it in the book, but something more tangible, because uh, we know I don't think uh, they are always reading uh, <laughs> reading the books they need to. Uh, what would be the approach that you would recommend that would really help write the course? If it is not, as you mentioned earlier, strictly a, a left-right divide between these two schools. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that politicians um, uh, need constantly to draw a contrast between, you know, these, these arrogant politicians, you know, telling us what a terrible place Canada is and how they have the, the expertise that's going to fix it. And to contrast that with the experience that Canadians have every day of what a fine country this is and how pleased they are uh, uh, to, to be here, how many of us came from other countries, is uh, to, to be here because this is the best place in the world to be. And I think if we keep reminding people, compare your experience, compare your day-to-day -day life, compare what you see around you and what people say to you about living in Canada, compare that with what the politicians are telling you. And soon you'll realize that the politicians live in a world of abstraction, which has nothing to do with the life of Canadians. And it's the life of Canadians and what they love and what they care about and what you know, motivates them that should drive the politics of this country. I think if we, if we were able to communicate that message to people, to be proud of being Canadian, not to be ashamed, uh, I, I think you would find that Canadians would vibrate very strongly with that message. The book is Gardeners versus Designers, Understanding the Great Fault Line in Canadian Politics. The author, Dr. Brian Lee Crowley, joining me on the line. Brian, thank you so much. Fantastic book. I really appreciate you taking the time to share a bit about it. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. That does it for me. My thanks again to Brian Lee Crowley and all of you for tuning into the show today. We'll be back on Thursday with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.